understand what God says in Scripture, context is key. And to fully understand and appreciate what God is doing here in Exodus 16, this passage that Tobin just read for us, we're going to look at the context. We're going to look at about 1,500 years' worth of context, actually. And it starts all the way back at the beginning of time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. (laughs) At the beginning of time, God created the heavens and the earth. On the sixth day of creation, God created the man, Adam, from the dust of the earth and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and he said his creation was very good. And on the seventh day, God rested. And he set apart the seventh day and made it holy. Remember that. After Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out of the Garden of Eden, they acted in obedience to God's first command and began to be fruitful and multiply. As people increased, sin also increased. And from Adam to Seth to Enosh to Kenan to Mahalalel to Jared to Enoch to Methuselah to Lamech to Noah, there were 1,056 years. Noah was Adam's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson. Seven greats. By the time Noah was born, the world was riddled with sin and evil, and the Lord decided to wipe the earth of all the sinful people through a global flood. But Noah was righteous and walked faithfully with God. So the Lord spared him and his family. In Genesis 9-7, God gives Noah the same command he gave Adam, to be fruitful and multiply. And again, he obeyed. Noah's son Shem became the father of our Arphaxad, then Shelah, then Eber, then Peleg, then Ru, then Serug, then Nahor, then Terah, then Abram. From Shem to Abram, there were 390 years. Noah was Abram's great, 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 great grandfather. Eight greats. In Genesis 12, God calls Abram and tells him that he will make him into a great nation, that all peoples on earth will be blessed through him. In Genesis 17, God gives Abram the covenant of circumcision and changes his name to Abraham, which likely means father of many. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob wrestled with God at the ford of the Jabbok River. And it was there that God changed Jacob's name to Israel, which likely means struggles with God. Jacob has 12 sons who become the heads of the 12 nations of Israel. One of those sons is Joseph. Abraham is Joseph's great-grandfather. Just one there. Joseph is sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, but God uses it for good as Joseph becomes a prominent ruler in Egypt and saves his family during the seven years of famine. After saving them, Joseph moves his whole family to Egypt where they will be safe and have plenty of land and food and necessary resources. While in Egypt, Jacob's family grow and increase in number, becoming the Israelite people, the nation of Israel. However, to the new Pharaoh who comes to power after Joseph's death, Joseph meant nothing. Instead, this ruler is fearful of how the Israelite people have grown and increased, and he enslaves them and oppresses them with forced labor. For hundreds of years, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. During that time, one of Joseph's brothers, Levi, had a son named Kohath, who then had Amram, who then had Moses. So Joseph was Moses' great-great-uncle. 
In Exodus 3, God tells Moses that he will use him to set his people free from their slavery in Egypt and fulfill the promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the nation of Israel. In the book of Exodus, we see him do just that in remarkable and miraculous ways. God had been present with the forefathers of the faith, with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, in powerful ways. And here in Egypt, with the ten plagues and the splitting of the Red Sea, God showed his power on full display to his people to save them from backbreaking slavery and forced labor under a tyrant king. And then they leave Egypt and they head out into the wilderness, led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, just trusting God fully for each next step. Right? Not exactly. The people of Israel head out into the desert from the Red Sea, and for three whole days, everything is good. Three days. They saw the sea split in two, and for three days they said, yes, God can do this, and then they got thirsty. So they started grumbling against Moses and against God. This guy brought us out here into the desert to die. There is no way God can give us water. He could split a sea, but he can't make us... It's not possible. Three days later, they had forgotten all the incredible things that God had done to bring them out of Egypt. And they didn't trust that he could give them water. When they came to Marah, the water was bitter, and they couldn't drink it, so they got even more frustrated and upset. And when Moses called out to God for something to drink... He showed him a lake. Nope. He showed him a piece of wood. And I don't know if it was out of faith or out of frustration, but Moses took that piece of wood and he chucked it in the water. And the water became drinkable. And the people were satisfied. God was faithful, even when his people weren't. They kept walking and they came to this place called Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, a beautiful oasis. And there they camped. God provides, even when his people are unfaithful. Then they packed up and kept moving. And it had been about a month and a half now since they left Egypt and the food that they had collected from the Egyptians was starting to run low, and so they started to get hungry. And so they fully trusted God that he would provide food for them. No. Instead, they began grumbling and complaining against God and against Moses. And so God sends quail in the evening to land in their camp. So many quail that all the people of Israel have their fill of meat. And in the morning, the dew turns to bread. A bread that was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. And they called it manna. Manna literally sounds like the Hebrew for what is it. So they called it what is it. The Israelite people ate manna every day in the wilderness for 40 years. It doesn't exist on earth in any other time, any other time period, but existed for those 40 years. The dew became bread. God made the morning dew turn to bread, and that bread provided them with all the necessary nutrients so that his people would be fed and healthy in the wilderness. God was faithful even when his people were unfaithful. God provides. But this time, God includes some regulations with his provision. First, the people are to gather only their daily bread each morning. 
If they gather more and try to store it up from themselves, then the next morning it will be filled with maggots and rot and stink. God is saying, I'll give you enough for this day. Trust me to do the same tomorrow. I'll provide for you today. Trust me to provide for you tomorrow. It brings to mind the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 34. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. God provided their daily bread. Then on the sixth day, God told them to gather double. Double what they would need, because on the seventh day, there would not be any manna on the ground. The seventh day would be a day of rest, a holy day, a day set apart to the Lord. Just like how God rested from the work of creation on the seventh day, so the Israelite people would rest on the seventh day because God would give them everything they would need on the sixth. This was a gift from the Lord, a day of rest. God provided extra on Friday so that on Saturday they could stay in. They wouldn't have to wake up early and gather. Remember, the manna melted in the heat of the day, so it had to be gathered early in the morning when it was still cool. They could rest. And that rest was not only a gift, but it was something strange to these Israelite people because they had just spent hundreds of years in slavery in Egypt. There was no rest in Egypt. There were no vacations. There were no weekends. There were no days off. It was cruel and forced labor under a tyrant king. And here in the desert, their father God was giving them a day off as a gift, a day of rest and refreshment. God was offering them something new, a new way to be human that didn't involve daily striving and working and slaving away. This new way to be human included rest because his people were made in his image and he is a God who rests. It took them some time to figure it out. Some folks still went out on Saturday and were upset and confused when they couldn't find any bread to collect. You mean I can't work today? But God made it a clear command. And more than a command, a promise, a covenant between he and his people. Trust me to provide. Trust in me daily. Trust not in yourselves or your work. Trust only in me. Your obedience is evidence of your faith, of your trust. God provides even when his people are unfaithful. God is faithful. The next time we hear about the Sabbath is when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. In the fourth commandment, God says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. In his commentary on the book of Exodus, Durham writes that remember here could better be translated as observe without lapse or hold as a present and continuing priority. This is important. This is critical. The Sabbath is a covenant commandment. The King James Version says to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So here, in what is likely a better translation, it is the remembering of the Sabbath that keeps it holy. The Hebrew kadash or kadesh means sacred or holy or to be set apart for a special purpose. So the Lord is commanding his people to observe the Sabbath by setting it apart from all other days. Six days you shall work. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God himself honored the Sabbath by resting on the seventh day of creation, and you, his people, made us in his image, are called to do likewise. There are no loopholes here. Even the animals are restricted from working on the Sabbath. This is a day of complete rest from the demands placed on us the other six days of the week. On those days, we must work in order to provide food and water and clothes and a home and necessary resources for ourselves and those in our care. But the Sabbath day is different. On this day, we trust the Lord to provide, and we cease from our frantic action. This was a command, but it was also a gift. Once a week, you are to rest your body, rest your mind, rest your soul, and trust in God to provide. The Israelite people, however, had a hard time remembering the Sabbath, so God kept reminding them. We don't have time to address every mentioning of the Sabbath here this morning in the Old Testament, but we see this command come up again in Exodus 23 and 31 and 35. It comes up six times in Leviticus in chapters 16, 19, 23, 25, and twice in 26. We see it in Deuteronomy 5 and Psalm 92, three times in Isaiah in chapters 1, 56, and 58. Jeremiah mentions it in chapter 17, and finally... The last mention of it in the Old Testament is in Ezekiel chapter 20, in the discussion of the rebelliousness of the nation of Israel. So I want to take a minute to discuss this chapter, because I think it's really pretty crucial to what God says here, and it will inform our application today. In Ezekiel chapter 20, the elders of Israel come to inquire of the Lord, but God tells Ezekiel to inform them that he has no intention of listening to them, or of allowing them to inquire of him, because they have rebelled against God and worshipped idols. In verses 10 through 14, we read, Therefore I led them out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my decrees and made known to them my laws by which the person who obeys them will live. Also I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between us so that they would know that I, the Lord, made them holy. Yet the people of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not follow my decrees but rejected my laws by which the person who obeys them will live. And they utterly desecrated my Sabbaths. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and destroy them in the wilderness. But for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. And God shows mercy and relents. In verse 12, he says, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between us so that they would know that I, the Lord, made them holy. And later on, verse 20 says, keep my Sabbaths holy that they may be a sign between us. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. The Sabbath was a sign between God and his people. The Lord was demanding an outward demonstration of the posture of their hearts. Practicing Sabbath demonstrated that they trusted the Lord to care for them. But his people didn't. Not only did they worship idols, believing these things they had fashioned with their hands would somehow save and sustain them, but they desecrated the Sabbath, a day meant to be set apart, a gift from the Lord after centuries of slavery, a covenantal sign of trust in God. And this is where the Pharisees got it wrong. You see, God doesn't care about outward observances if the heart is not in it. 
In 1 Samuel 16, 7, we read, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says, For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. In Psalm 50, 14 through 15, Asaph writes, Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. There he's talking about gratitude, faithfulness, and trust. And those are heart postures. That's what God wants from his people. And those things only come from the heart. In Hosea 6, 6, God says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In Isaiah chapter 1, speaking specifically of the Sabbath, he commanded them to keep. God says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Instead, learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, said the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient." You will eat the good things of the land, but if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God cares about the hearts of his people, willingness and obedience. He knows that if their hearts are set right with him, then their words and actions will overflow out of a heart established firmly on the holy ground of the kingdom of God. After centuries of slavery, God called his people out in power and love. He brought them to a promised land, overflowing with good things, and he did so for his glory. John Piper writes that God is most glorified in man when man is most satisfied in him. Work is a requirement. Our physical, earthly bodies need sustenance, and that sustenance demands labor. Labor is a gift from God, as we see in Genesis, but toil is a result of sin. We toil six days every week, but God gives us the seventh for rest. And that seventh day is a foreshadowing of the rest we will experience in glory. That seventh day keeps in mind every week that we are but sojourners in this land. We are aliens here. This world is not our home. We await a better country, a heavenly one, and we await it with eager expectation. The seventh day, that rest, that Sabbath, not only demonstrates our trust in our God and his promises for today, but also his promises for the future, that we will be with him forever in heavenly rest. Our obedience to his commands honors our covenantal relationship and brings God the glory that he is due. And this command is not heavy. This command is rest. This burden is light. This burden is rest. A day set apart to the Lord. Our Father knows us. He knows our hearts. We are an anxious and frantic people. We are constantly chasing safety, but safety here on earth is an illusion. Only God is safe. No amount of money can save you. No reputation, no status, no education, no earthly treasures. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Only God is worthy of our trust. Only God is worthy of our time. And only God is worthy of our lives. Sabbath is a demonstration of belief in that fact. I will not strive this day. I will not chase safety or money or status or fame. I will rest. 
I will cease from my labor. I will cease from my toil. I will pause. I will trust that God is in control. It is in him my true sustenance is found, and it is in him my holiness is found. This is in agreement with what Paul writes in Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. In Ezekiel 20, 12, we see that God gave them my Sabbath as a sign between us so they would know that I, the Lord, made them holy. Their holiness, their set-apartness, was not earned by action. It was given to them as a gift by the Lord. And the Sabbath was a sign of that. On the Sabbath, they could not work. They were required to rest. And yet God did not forsake them because of their lack of productivity that day. On the contrary, that rest demonstrated that it was not the works of man, but the grace of God that made his people holy. Abraham Joshua Heschel is perhaps the most renowned uh, Jewish scholar. And his book, The Sabbath, is truly a work of art. There's your book recommendation for today. Even though Kevin's gone, you still get a book recommendation. The Sabbath by Heschel. In his first chapter of the first part, he writes this. He who wants to enter the holiness of the day must first lay down the profanity of clattering commerce, of being yoked to toil. He must go away from the screech of dissonant days, from the nervousness and fury of acquisitiveness and the betrayal of embezzling his own life. He must say farewell to manual work and learn to understand that the world has already been created and will survive without the help of man. Six days a week we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. On the Sabbath we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in the soul. The world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. Six days a week we seek to dominate the world. On the seventh day we try to dominate the self. The Lord gave his chosen people the Sabbath as a covenant and a gift. After centuries of slavery in Egypt, the Israelite people were given a day every week to rest, to be refreshed, to worship, to honor God. Truly, their rest was their worship. It was evidence of their trust in their Father and a foretaste of the perfect rest awaiting them in eternity. At the beginning of time, On the seventh day of creation, when the world was just a week old, God rested. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. God is not anxious. He is not worried. He is not surprised. He is still. He is present. He is here. God rests, and we as his people are called to do the same. The seventh day is a day set apart, a day of recognition that we are not in control even of our own little lives, a reminder that although we do not know what tomorrow holds, we know who holds tomorrow, and we can trust in him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your rest as a gift. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, even in our increasing and constant unfaithfulness. Thank you for your patience with us, your endless and tireless patience, and your beautiful and life-changing love. Thank you that you are always in the process of redeeming us with gentleness and kindness 
that you offer us peace if we would just take it from your hand. We love you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen.